Welcome to Moving On. Here you will get expert information, tips, and most importantly, the tools to moving on to a healthy, happy, and thriving life that you want to be living. Letting go of whatever is holding you back, whether you are in an unhealthy relationship or learning how to be in a healthy one, or maybe you are in a job that you've been dying to move on from, Learn to let go of what's holding you back and become the thriving, healthy, and happy person that is inside you. Welcome to Moving On. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Moving On, where I talk to different experts about their life experiences, the things they've gone through, the things they're going through, and where they are now in their life and how it may impact you in terms of your own life. So today I have with me Jen Friday, like Friday. <laughs> yes, yes. All right, good. I like to get those names right. Um, I always get the T R A C E Y instead of T R A C Y, and so mm-hmm. you know, it's always something. So let me tell you guys a little bit about Jen, so that you can get familiar with her, and then we can jump right into it. And where are my notes? Okay, there we go. So Jen Friday helps burned out, overwhelmed moms get off the hamster wheel and find balance so they can love their lives again. As a mom of six, I didn't know you had six kids. Holy cow. Okay, (laughs) wow, yes. Okay, with a PhD in human development and family studies and host of the Vibrant Happy Women podcast. I was on her podcast, by the way. Uh, Jen gives women tools that work, tools that work. Tools like the feel it to heal it method. That's very similar to the stuff I say. It's interesting. And be her morning ritual. Jen lives with her family just outside of Madison, Wisconsin, and in her free time, she loves hiking, yoga, and napping. Yes, I'm, I'm a nap ninja. Let's face it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And you're in my home state. So that's awesome. So, all right. Anyways, Jen, I want to go back in time. All right. Let's just like get in a little time capsule and go backwards. So tell me when you were a little girl, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, fascinating. Architect or doctor, which neither was right for me at all. (laughs) So funny. So what is it? So like, I wanted to be a doctor at one point also, right? Like I wanted to help people. So, you know, to me, for some reason, doctor, that seemed like the way to go. But what about you? Um, I was a good student. And so those were the careers that sounded like what good students do. So uh, people would present ideas and, oh, you'd be good at this. And I just latched onto it before I knew what was really out there, I think. So yeah, high achiever. Yeah. Ah, And were you a high achiever naturally? Or is this a way that like you got along as in your family? This is a way to get attention because a lot of people become high achievers because of the positive feedback they get, not necessarily because woohoo, I love being a high achiever. Yeah, well, I'm kind of a, almost a little sorry that I just said high achiever because anyone listening will be like, oh, great, another one of those. But <laughs> I am a high achiever because of dysfunction in my family of origin. By the way, my parents are really great now. But when I was young, my dad was an alcoholic and my parents are farmers and I'm uh, from Iowa. <laughs> and I was very, very parentified, which really means that I was in charge of my younger brothers. I was cooking a lot of food by age eight. I was in charge of the meals and keeping the house running. And um, that that drive uh, was a part of that. But also that was the way I could please my parents was to constantly strive and try to achieve. And is my room clean enough? I remember at age five, 
taking everything I owned from my five-year-old room, like toys and figurines and stuff and piling it on my bed and then dusting everything and then putting it carefully back. So a level of perfectionism that wasn't healthy, probably just from what was going on in my family of origin, or maybe it's my personality and genetics. I don't know, but that's who I am and, and how the environment played a role, I think. I think so. I mean, I can relate to a lot of what you're saying. I was the oldest child. Uh, my mom called me her little soldier. And so I believe that personality has a lot to do with how you take in your conditioning because mm -hmm. your conditioning, you know, is happening also to your siblings, right? And they're mm -hmm. different than you. And so I just attribute that, you know, to, hey, personality. And then what do I do with that? Like, how do I succeed in this environment? Or how do I succeed, at, you know, live, basically thrive, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my audience, um, I've talked to so many people who have very similar stories. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm sure everybody's like, oh, my God, me too. Yeah, I remember, no fault of my mom, everyone knows farm kids learn to drive really young. So I was driving cars by age eight. <laughs> I, oh, I promise this was normal where I'm from in a very rural area, not on the road necessarily, but to the field and back. Well, I remember my earliest memory is when I was probably two years old and my little brother had been born and my mom said, Jennifer, come here. And she pointed out the window. She said, I'm going to drive the tractor right up there. I want you to stand here and just watch. Don't wake up your brother. <laughs> so my earliest memory is being in charge of my little baby brother, watching my mom drive up the road. And I, you know, that kind of epitomizes the, the deep responsibility I carried very young and, and just have carried ever since. So, yeah. Oh, my God. Wow. That yeah. is young, but yeah. it is interesting. Cause I know when I was eight, my brother's five years younger than me and I was babysitting him, you know? And when I was, I mean, it was just, again, I was like a little adult. So, um, and so obviously that has an impact on you on how you relate to the rest of the world. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I grew up achieving honor society and volleyball and basketball and great grades went on and got my PhD, just kept being driven. I met my husband in grad school. And by the time I finished my PhD in human development and family studies, we had two kids. And then that overachievement kept going because obviously I had six kids. Who does that? They <laughs> <laughs> have three, so I don't know, you know, but I get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, that my marriage to my husband um, is a whole nother kind of dysfunctional story that has a progressively happier ending like we're still together um but you know that that drive eventually in my 30s led to a massive burnout point where i was baking bread like six loaves of bread a week for all these kids my husband loved it and um i was throwing birthday parties and keeping my house really spotless because that's how my mom taught me to do it and i was just so unhappy my whole life was everyone else. And um, I had a miscarriage on Christmas Day one year, maybe about a maybe a decade ago. I don't know how long ago, but about that. And um, that day, my husband and I just had this knockdown drag out fight while we're driving to the hospital an hour away from my parents to get an IV because I was super lightheaded. It was not a normal maybe miscarriage mm -hmm. I'd had. It was my sixth. I even overachieve on miscarriages. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. um, 
So my husband is interesting. He comes from a trauma background. He's probably higher on the autism spectrum, although has not been diagnosed. He's a scientist. Um, when things get out of whack, like the day I'm having a miscarriage on Christmas day, he freaks out. So in his defense, you know, most people wouldn't have a knockdown drag out fight with a miscarrying woman, but we did that day. And I went into the ER alone and my husband sat in the car with our 18 month old for a while while she slept. And I swear they thought I was on drugs walking in alone on Christmas day. I was super pale and like holding my head. And he said, well, who brought you here? I said, my husband, he's in the car with my baby. And they're like, yeah, right. So they actually had to test and see if I was really pregnant. They didn't believe me. Then they oh finally God. said, oh, you're pregnant. Okay. Well, you were, <laughs> your levels are dropping. Long story short, I left the hospital four hours later, heading back to our kids. So empty and mad and sad at, oh, I just allowed my life to become awful. This awful relationship with my husband and draining myself with the kids. And it was enough pain that day that that's the day where I had like a pivot point and I vowed I'm going to be happy no matter what. That meant I don't care what happens to them for a minute. I'm going to take care of me. And that began the journey of where I am today with the Vibrant Happy Women podcast. The long answer. I love that though, because, you know, going back in time, first of all, when you met your husband, you know, and, and I, I've had miscarriages, I understand, you know, and there's an emotional aspect to it too, but, you know, going back, you met him and there must've been some form of bond, right? I mean, trauma bond, whatever you want to call it. I know that's like the catchy phrase, but literally what was it that brought you to somebody who would eventually you'd have a fight with, you know, in a situation like that. Not that this is, by the way, so unusual. I guess right. in my world, I'm just like, yeah, shit like that happens. But right. for you. Um, so funny. When I met him, I was actually interested in another guy. And we were kind of in this uh, singles kind of group through our, our con church congregation. And um, he came along and I just thought he was weird. But at this dance once, I brought a friend and he was dancing and he happened to be a really, uh, I guess I'll say a sexy dancer, which surprised me because he's a scientist and kind of a geek. And I was like, wow. And then this friend was like, oh, I like him. And then I started to look and my jealousy radar turned on. And <laughs> by the end of the night, she was left at the dance alone. And I went and left the dance with my now husband. And um, I think I was attracted phys very physically, probably looking back. I had an anxious attachment style and he had a detached avoidant because of his trauma history. And, you know, the pattern of you want to chase what's pulling away from you, I think um, was very attractive to me. Um, also, he's super smart, which I love. So, yeah. 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 You know, it's really funny. And I had read this when I was doing research for my book um, is that, and also even before that, I found that a lot of people that were attracted to my work and myself included were very intelligent. And it was funny because a lot of studies would always try and show people that have attachment issues are not intelligent. <laughs> I'm like, oh, interesting. I'm so sorry, but that is just not true. Because it's not true. No, no you've no. overcompensated for the emotional intelligence that you mm -hmm. don't have for intelligence that you do have. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. So, um, yeah, we had physical attraction. I would say we married. Um, and then within a month of the marriage, 
disillusionment began to set in because I realized I think my biggest fault with him from the beginning and even still today, although I'm learning to accept it as I become more and more securely attached through my healing work, um, my biggest fault with him is that I believe he does not fully empathize with my feelings. I feel mm -hmm. like my guess is that he was so flooded when any emotion was shown as a child. Um, I can offer more background on that if you'd like to. Sure, um, sure. Um, my theory is he was so flooded with emotion. Whenever emotion showed up, it was a big danger sign. So if I'm anything but neutral, even huh. extreme happiness makes him very nervous. So if I'm anything but neutral, he's got a wall up like self-protection mode no desire to connect. So let's say I had a, a bad day and I had cried. He would stare at me kind of like this and pat me on the shoulder. Like, oh my God. like, are you okay? And then the mm -hmm. words were very robotic. I could never feel that deep emotional connection that I would feel with um, girlfriends or even some other really kind of sensitive guy friends. I'm like, I could tell you and your wife can connect on this emotional level. What's going on here? Um, right. But in the end, it became the greatest gift because I had to learn to be 100% responsible for my own emotions and accept that he's never going to give me what I think I should have in this uh, emotional realm. Okay, I'm going to meet my own emotional needs. I'm going to be in charge of my happiness. If I have a bad day, I'm going to build in these other friendships where I can have support. So the relationship isn't the emotionally connected one I've always craved, but we have our moments and we have great physical attractions still to this day, which is great. Who, who wouldn't like to have a great sex life? So there are things that are great. Kids. That are Hello. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I get it. I mean, and here's the thing, no relationship is ever going to be perfect or fulfill all needs for anybody, especially if you're not fulfilling your own needs, you have to fulfill your own needs. And I wish we were taught that. But I think most of our, you know, at least in my family, you know, my parents didn't get an instruction booklet, all they had were their dysfunctional ways of being mm -hmm. and what they learned from their parents. And, you know, we just pass it down generation to generation. And, you know, I feel like at least people that are my contemporaries, you know, peers, people that are younger, I think, people are, are getting more of a clue now, like, oh, wait a minute, this is my conditioning. Mm -hmm. I can do something about this. Like, it doesn't like this idea I have of, you know, the fairy princess being rescued by the prince mm -hmm. is kind of BS. And yes, okay, <laughs> right? Like, I can still go on and live a happy life. Yep, absolutely. I could be happy, both in or out of the marriage. You know what I mean? I've already figured that out. Um, I would be fine. So that kind of releases the pressure on him to perform. We, we're just together. We, we have kids in common. We have a house, a family, a sex life. There are these things that do work. And so um, I have spent a lot of time, you know, there are messages out there these days I, on social media and, and otherwise where you're taught if that person doesn't look at you like you are the sun rising in the sky, you're in the wrong relationship. And I've thought, oh, I definitely don't have that. <laughs> but <laughs> I always come back to, well, what what I do have, what if um, my next relationship, I didn't have a, a, a great sex life, or he wasn't great with kids. My husband is actually really good with our kids. He plays games, and he'll drive them anywhere. He's very devoted. And I just keep clinging to 
what is going well and then try to meet my other needs where I can when right. it's not with him with the emotions and stuff. So right. I really get tired of that bullshit on social media too. <laughs> because, you know, because usually the people who are posting that, they're not living it. Yes. And, it's you know, so true. And you're in and, and also it's trying to set a standard that doesn't have any like place. It's so subjective, right? Mm -hmm. And to say, oh, they need to look at me in a certain way. Well, what is you know, I mean, in my life, my husband is like a far nicer human being than I'll ever be. Like he is just mm -hmm. way kinder. But at the same time, I don't go, oh God, if he didn't look at me this way, I would leave him. It's just so, right. it's just so black and white and emotions yeah. and relationships are not built on black and white definition. Absolutely. Absolutely. All the gray, all the shades of gray, <laughs> not the 50, <laughs> but let's go 100. <laughs> <laughs> all righty we'd be going in a different direction with this conversation so all oh, right right yeah <laughs> I, I i do want to mention i feel like it'd be doing i feel like there's someone out there with, who would benefit from hearing a little bit about my husband's story i have permission to share well, yeah. you know parts um so my husband is his mom is american and she met his dad um in slovenia well, his dad's the really brilliant scientist. His mom's pretty smart herself, um, probably on the autism spectrum, probably has bipolar. His mom, his dad was fairly stable, worked and supported them. She also had six kids. They moved to Switzerland. Such a weird, unique story, right? Mm -hmm. um, all I can tell you to represent some of the dysfunction is she once told me I never hugged my children because it felt sexual to me. So oh. That's one of the things. My poor husband, when wow. he was nine months old, the, the time when babies are forming an attachment to a caregiver. No, this is a caregiver who wouldn't hug him. Already right. a problem. She was having a miscarriage of her next child. So she shipped literally this child to her mother's house in Philadelphia, right in the middle of that critical attachment phase. And when I first met this woman, his grandmother, she said, oh, your husband, he was a demanding baby. I would put him in the playpen and he would stand there and cry for hours. And I'm thinking, oh, this poor child. Right. He never learned to trust anyone but himself ever. It's no wonder to me that he can't possibly feel very safe connecting or relying on or needing anybody. That that detachment style, you can see its origins um, in his background. So um you know, yeah. for a while, yeah. I felt sorry for myself. Like, why did I choose this dysfunctional guy? But now I think it's my greatest gift because if I can heal myself and learn to be emotionally self-reliant, anyone yeah. can. And I'm still with him and there are still benefits to the relationship. And um, the struggle gave me a chance to heal. So, yeah, I, I hope that, that helps someone. Yeah. I, I, You know what? And I know in the people listening that there are a lot of people out there that can probably relate. Because we are so, okay, first of all, we live in a judgmental society. Second mm -hmm. of all, we are so judgmental of ourselves and our choices and always second guessing ourselves or looking for, well, am I doing the normal thing? Am I doing the right thing? And then you hear that, you know, somebody where it looks like on the outside, you're like, wow, Jen looks like she's got this great life and her, you know, the background must be great. And then you start to dig a little deeper and you're like, oh my gosh, wow, I can totally relate. Mm -hmm. And I wish more people would do that because- there is nobody who's perfect out there. There's no. none of that. And and yeah. and the goal is, of course, to have enough self-awareness 
to make these kind of changes like you're talking about, where mm -hmm. you decide, you go, okay, this may not be perfect, whatever that means, but I want to be here. And if I want to be here, I need to accept certain things about being here rather than trying to change an immovable object. Absolutely. And um, a, f a funny little modern moment story is, you know, over the years I've come to see this deep emotional connection where I say, I'm feeling this and there's anything back that feels like a connection uh, mm -hmm. isn't there. But I've noticed, you know, polyvagal theory is getting really big in the world, which is kind of how your body regulates the ups and downs, the anxiety and the depression and kind of tries to always normalize. I've come to see that I can experience deep emotional connection just by like, um, I hope this isn't TMI, spooning with him, just lying in a, a kind mm -hmm. of a cuddle, a hug. And um, he's prone to anxiety. I'm prone to depression. And the other day I went to kind of cuddle with him and I noticed his breath was super shallow, like, <sighs> mm -hmm. and I was like, whoa, what's going on? Are you anxious? Are you stressed? And he's like, why? Well, your breath is so shallow and fast. And so all I did was lie there next to him and just concentrate on slowing my breath. And it was so fascinating to notice his breath, whether he was conscious or not, slowing, deepening, calming. He started to sigh and then like, <sighs> So I knew he was coming down from his anxiety. And I was thinking, my goodness, maybe we don't even need words to connect. What if we just have this physical, emotional breath presence type of connection? His body can clearly handle that. I felt connected. I felt loved. And we didn't need the words, which don't really work very well for him. So just mm -hmm. a fascinating thing I noticed. Yeah, That's really cool because it goes back to awareness. You are being aware of you. You're being aware of him. And it's interesting because it's not necessarily that you were trying to fix him. I want to clarify this for everybody listening. You were focusing on your own breath. Yeah. And you were laying there spooning with him. And mm -hmm. that was an effect of it, which to me also speaks to when you take care of yourself, it affects the other people more rather than mm -hmm. you trying to control them or trying to change them. Absolutely. I was, I had to be totally grounded and calm and not judging anything that was going on for him. And this is the same with my kids, you know, kids get dysregulated. And often I found if I just come and look in their eyes and stroke their arms and breathe with them, and I'm just in their face and present, they wouldn't even have to say anything. It's so fascinating to watch their nervous system re-regulate. And we can give that gift to our spouses, even if we maybe perhaps even more so because we have trauma backgrounds, um, if we're aware of it, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. It is to be aware of it. And it is also to stop focusing on the others and to focus on yourself, you mm -hmm. know, and, and through that, like in my own journey, that's what I've done. And that's made me a more generous person. And it's made me more emotionally available than trying mm -hmm. to focus out here and do whatever out here first. Yeah. No, you got to do what's in here first. That way you're taken care of and you're just naturally able to help others in a way that doesn't feel like you're people pleasing or it's draining. That's absolutely true. I wouldn't have gone in there at all if I had felt stressed or out of whack or dysregulated myself. I, I don't have anything to give when I feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and again, that's awareness because a lot of people feel like, oh, I have to keep giving even though I feel like crap. You don't have to. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's where I'm really, really good at boundaries. That's another gift my husband has given me. I've learned how I want to feel and I've learned what kind of pulls me out of feeling that way. Yes. It's my own thoughts about an interaction with him, but often I'll just say, Hey, uh, I don't like that volume of voice. I don't like, I don't, I can't be around your anxiety right now, whatever it is. I'm going to go take a break. Um, and he does the same. He started to have healthy boundaries just by learning them from watching me do it. So it's kind of fun. Yeah. To grow with another person like that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I love that. I feel like that in my marriage where we grow and we've grown in ways that I don't even resemble the person I used to be, you know, in terms of my relationship. So, so let's talk a little bit about what you actually do. I know you, you have a <laughs> podcast, right? And you have your program. So how do you help people? Like, what does that look like? You know, I've noticed that women in their late 30s or sometimes early 40s get to this place where they recognize, okay, my kids are heading to school or I'm empty nesting, depending where they are with kids, um, especially moms are, are who I serve, um, where they say, oh, I've totally lost myself. Who am I? What do I even like? What's my big girl job or career or life? going to be now because I allowed parenting to kind of usurp my entire identity. So I just teach women how to figure out what they want, how to take care of themselves, how to handle any emotion, you know, how to change their thoughts. So they're not um, thinking the thoughts that cause more pain, how to have healthy boundaries, all these things that allow us to kind of um, recreate or realign our identity with who we really want to be as we move forward with the second half of life. Long story okay. short. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I think that that's important because, uh, again, breaking old paradigms of other generations still takes mm -hmm. more than one generation. You know, it's like, I think, you know, you move from the baby boomers or the silent generation before them or whatever. I mean, and I don't believe in a lot of the generational bullshit anyways, but right. the lines are kind of like, I don't understand that. So, you know, and then you, you move into more, you know, uh, the millennials or you move into, I don't know what the hell it is, Gen Z, Gen Y, Gen, Gen, Gen. So, you know, but the point being that, you know, at one point women were just housewives for the most part, you know, a small percentage were in the workspace. Mm -hmm. And you know, your whole job was to have your identity be your family. So yeah. I think we're still, you know, making movement towards it's okay to have an identity. It's okay to take care of yourself as a mom and as a woman. Absolutely. And it's okay not to cook every meal. I still sometimes have that messaging go through my head where I'll, I'll pause and catch myself thinking, Oh, I'm really a jerk for making my husband cook most of the food. <laughs> but I'm like, no, I work too. And I handle a lot of the scheduling. I do all the laundry. He can handle the food and grocery shopping. I am not a bad person. I have to remind myself, he's got this. He enjoys cooking. What am I talking about? Yeah. Right. I know. Give yourself a break there, you know? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. When my husband's home, he... uh he does the laundry. I do the cooking because I like to do the cooking. Yeah, but I don't exactly. work all the time. Yeah, but I don't do it all the time. But yeah. he's a better folder. He does laundry better than I do. So oh, <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah, like woohoo, go for it. Yeah. So yeah, that's great. Yeah. So where can people find you if they're looking for you? And is there anything you know that you want to impart to the audience too before we wrap it up? My wisdom, my advice is 
just believe this thought. You deserve to be happy and fulfilled. If you could start to believe that, it will have a trickle-down effect on how you interact, how you hold boundaries. If you truly believe, I deserve to be happy and fulfilled. So um, I carry out that messaging through my podcast, Vibrant Happy Women. You can find me in any podcast app. Um, you can learn more about what I'm doing in my programs, my Vibrant Happy Women retreat that I hold every year. All of that's on jenrideay.com. Awesome. I love it. I love what you've shared with us today. And I would, you know, I, I totally think you guys should look her up and listen to her podcast. I'm on her podcast too, like I said. Yeah, but listen to Tracy's episode is really, really good. <laughs> and also there's other ones too. And I want you guys to, you know, really uh, check her stuff out. And Jen, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Tracy. Absolutely. All right, you guys, you all take care. And I will see you next time on Moving On. Have a good one. Bye-bye. For more information about Tracy and her programs and to set up a discovery session, email happiness at tracycrossley.com. That's happiness at tracycrossley.com or go to the website for more information. And thank you for tuning in to Moving On 